Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. What's up, podcast listeners? Thanks so much for downloading. We are back again for the kickoff to our third season of Critical Value, and we're super excited about the podcast we have in the hopper for the coming year. Our request to you is to subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening to now, rate the show on iTunes, and spread the word far and wide to let others know about us. Thank you so much in advance. On today's episode, we're going to talk about charitable giving and philanthropy. Giving is super important and relevant in this current moment in the U.S. when we're still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and so many people are struggling to make ends meet. And really, charitable giving and philanthropy has always been an important part of American life, though what it looks like is starting to change. On this episode, we'll share the findings of some new research that highlights how and when people talk about giving in social media what might influence people to give more, and what Americans are doing in this moment to support each other. We're going to need a guide for this journey, and I'm just the person. I'm Benjamin Saskis. I'm a research associate at the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute, and I'm a historian of philanthropy that focuses on the intersection of philanthropy and democratic institutions and norms. So let's start big picture. How much money do Americans give away every year? So it's pretty easy to count money that you give to tax-exempt charities, 501c3 charities from the tax code. And usually when we talk, when you hear about like big tallies for how much Americans get every year, this year, for instance, in 2019, uh, the most recent numbers, something like $450 billion, a lot of money. And people give in other ways that can't be counted as easily. We all know there's lots of other types of giving out there. Peer-to-peer giving, peer giving that, you, that might happen, say, informally on the street or through an online platform like GoFundMe. There is remittances, money that's, that's given to um, populations in different countries. There is uh, money given to advocacy organizations that are not tax-exempt. Uh, or that you can't claim a, a, a charitable deduction for. Charitable giving is important for a host of reasons. The most obvious one is that it's important for nonprofit organizations to stay afloat. Charity is the way that we fund many services, many institutions. Um, there are certain fields that rely heavily on charitable giving, museums and the arts, for instance, and many local institutions. Charity is actually the sort of third Um, revenue source for for most nonprofits. So depending on which nonprofit you're looking at, charity can have a huge impact in terms of the finances that they can rely on. But Ben points to another key reason, giving is essential. The secondary reason with sort of deep, deep roots in American thinking is a kind of civic reason. Charitable giving is how, is one way at least, that Americans express their values, their priorities, their ideas, their beliefs, And it creates a kind of pluralistic network of kind of prism of of American values and interests, which is a kind of bedrock for civil society. The act of giving itself as much as voting, as much as activism, is a key way that that Americans as citizens have sort of materialized and, and promoted their values. 
So giving is important for at least those reasons, but Ben sees a couple of conflicting trends in recent years. While funding is up, you know, remember that $450 billion? Well, that's been increasing in recent years, but the percentage of families that gave to charity is actually dropping, going from 66% in 2000 to closer to 53% in 2016. And there's some indication that in the last year or two, less than half of all families gave in the traditional way. You have these kind of two different narratives that are out there. You have a narrative of growth and expansion, a narrative that's easy to celebrate, where you see the aggregate figures tick up every year, with exceptions after a major economic crisis. But $450 billion is a lot of money. And then you have these other figures about declining participation amongst regular folks. It's all part of a larger concern about how a political economy in which more resources are controlled by a smaller and smaller subset of Americans can shape a kind of broader civic culture. Now, that concern is sort of shadows the, I think, the really impressive numbers about the billions and billions that are, that are raised each year. But the decreasing number of Americans providing charitable contributions does not mean that people aren't thinking and talking about how to give. That's something that our second researcher has been working on. So my name is Emily Boardman Ndulue, and I'm a researcher with the Media Cloud Project, which was developed at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. I do research on the news media and increasingly on social media as well, and discourse and coverage of major events and how discourse in one segment influences the other. One question that Emily has been looking at lately is how people talk about giving in these various media. We wanted to understand the narratives that were present in discourse. And in particular, when we started the project, we had a lens for what are promising narratives, narratives that would encourage people to view giving positively and perhaps give themselves. Uh, what were problematic narratives, narratives that might be critical of giving. So this seems like a big task, right? Like, how do you figure out what people are talking about? Well, if you're Emily, you do it very systematically. We developed a complex keyword query that gets at coverage and discussion of philanthropy and giving, very tested and validated over many iterations. And we've used that to capture all of the news coverage that we can get from the U.S., which from our media cloud system is over 10,000 sources in the U.S. alone. And then all posts that we can see on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that seems like a lot of things to track. As far as just looking at content that mentions philanthropy in around 3 million Facebook posts, 1 million Instagram posts, 50 million tweets. So it is a big data set. What comes next? And then we do a lot of analysis and a lot of reading and distill things like the peaks in coverage over time, what events drove coverage, what language is used, what frames are used, key narratives, the influencers, who's driving coverage, who's being mentioned and who's producing. And also just takeaways about what we might expect to see there and don't, the influence of other topics like politics. And then just recently, we're finishing up findings for the COVID and Black Lives Matter issues within this topic as well. So given all that research, how much are people talking about giving and philanthropy? When we search into 30 mainstream U.S. media sources, 
and we use our keyword query to represent philanthropy and giving, we find that about 2.5% of stories annually refer to giving and philanthropy. And this is actually more than basketball, the NBA gets, but it's less than football, the NFL gets. Basketball gets about 2% and football gets over 3.5%. So it sounds like a small number, but when you put it into context against those major sports that you would assume are big parts of the news cycle, it gives you a better idea of the prevalence. I have to admit, I found this was sort of surprising. My Twitter feed definitely includes more basketball than philanthropy. Shout out to the Denver Nuggets. But it's also promising. I asked Emily her takeaways from the research. A conclusion that we can take from the three years of the study is that giving in philanthropy is a very common, prevalent thing for everyday people to discuss, and it gets tied into the major events that happen of the day, whether they're tragic, whether they're political, whether they're human interest. It's something that ties to other ways that people can get involved and help. Another important finding is that this concept of giving and what encompasses giving is growing. We're finding that the definition of giving and what types of issues are connected to giving does seem to be expanding. So with coronavirus, we're seeing some discourse around not going out as a way of giving back. We're seeing discourse around paying it forward. If you've got your job, keep paying someone that maybe you were paying before, like someone who works in your home, for example, even if they're not coming, expanding what it means to give. While politics may amplify the discourse around charitable giving, Emily says narratives are also influenced by events. Disasters were a key driver. For the first year, we saw Hurricane Harvey and the Las Vegas shooting. And then for this year, of course, coronavirus, as well as the murder of George Floyd. COVID is certainly not a single day event, but an ongoing week after week, month after month issue. But we are seeing when we look at what we call attention over time, where we map the volume of posts or articles against the day, there are larger peaks in coverage to George Floyd-related and racial justice-related protests than to COVID events. For social media, though, disasters are also present, but we also see breakthrough of certain giving campaigns. Giving Tuesday is a peak across all social platforms. On the one hand, it is the only campaign that created a peak in coverage across all the social platforms. So it's consistently among the highest, if not the highest, day of discussion about giving. However, it only represents about 2% of all posts. So there are clearly still times when everyday Americans are thinking and talking about giving back to communities in different ways. But given the fact that overall giving has been trending down, an interesting question to think about is how we might try to reverse that trend. This is something that our final expert has been looking at. My name is Erica Rosenthal, and I am the director of research at the Norman Lear Center, which is part of the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at USC. Erica looks at media and the effects of media messages, both positive and negative, and the processes through which media messages influence people's knowledge, attitudes, and behavior. Media is is just a tool, and messages can be healthy or unhealthy, positive or negative. The goal is is to to be able to have the tools to, to deal with the negative messages, to be able to critically examine those, and also kind of learn from from the positive messages and 
we know from you know, decades of research, there's characteristics of media messages that make them able to subvert kind of rational processing systems. Hmm. Subvert rational processing systems, like influence them to behave in different ways? So in our research at the Lear Center, we, we look at a number of mechanisms that make media messages more likely to persuade people. So one of those is transportation into the narrative. So sort of a flow-like state where you know, people lose track of their surroundings and kind of become immersed in the story world. Also identification with key characters, sometimes feelings kind of verging on a feeling of friendship with a fictional TV character, for example, something we call parasocial interaction. So as a result of these, stories are really able to kind of break through the clutter of information and, and overcome the, the mental defenses that people tend to put up against you know, traditional, more overtly persuasive messages. So this makes entertainment stories and stories in general even, even more powerful. In her latest research, Erica has been looking at a few things in particular. The main question there was, how is charitable giving depicted? in TV, broadly defined to include news, scripted TV entertainment, unscripted TV, as well as uh, we even looked at ads. We looked at sports, children's programming. And then for the surveys, the key question we were interested was the relationship between individuals' charitable giving behavior and their media and entertainment consumption. And how did Erica and team answer this question? They conducted an audience survey, which they ended up doing at two time points. We were originally going to do one survey in April, but we ended up adding a second one in July as the pandemic was unfolding. We also evaluated 2.6 million hours of, of TV to look for, for charitable giving messages. So given all these many hours of TV and more, what did they find? Giving shows up on news programming vastly more than it shows up anywhere else on TV. So eight out of 10 mentions on U.S. television were in news programming, and that was fairly consistent across all three periods. News programs talk a lot more about giving, but it turns out that other forms of TV have the power to reach many more people. During the giving season, each mention of charitable giving on news averaged 42,000 viewers, but when it was mentioned on a scripted TV show, it averaged over 285,000 viewers for, for a single mention. Scripted TV accounted for only 6% of mentions, but it, it accounted for 52 out of the top 100 most viewed mentions. The team also looked at the relationship between individuals' charitable giving behavior and their media consumption. We divided participants into three groups based on their 2019 giving behavior. So we had a group we called responsive givers. So these are the people who primarily gave in response to current events or because they were asked by friends and family. And then we had another group we called plan givers. So these are the people who plan their giving ahead of time. They often set up recurring donations. They give a lot through tithing. And then finally, the non-givers. So these are the people who didn't give at all in, in 2019. And we looked at the, the media preferences of each of those groups. And so what does this mean for changing behavior? So when we see a scripted storyline show up on a popular 
a charitable giving storyline show up on a popular scripted TV show, it really has the, the opportunity to influence the decisions of millions of people. And scripted TV is, is the one that really reaches both planned and responsive givers, has the potential to evoke empathy with characters which reaches plan givers. It has the potential for celebrity endorsements, which reaches responsive givers. And it operates through kind of the mechanisms and processes that I was talking about, uh, transportation into the narrative where people, you know, tend to forget their surroundings. They're less likely to throw up what we call counter arguments against, you know, a typical kind of persuasive message people would argue against it but when it appears in entertainment it kind of it subverts those processes we know this is particularly likely to happen in comedy as well people kind of lower their defenses when consuming entertainment and particularly when consuming comedy so maybe a show like brooklyn 99 can change my giving habits so what was the important thing you came down here to talk about uh the kids and the rice and Putting the rice in the kids. Ladies and gentlemen, we have two new donors! <laughs> Yay! Oh, there's a bell! Oh. <laughs> Do y'all have an ATM? So given all of these findings, what does Erica recommend if the goal is to increase giving? I mean, one is to place calls to action in unscripted programming. There's kind of the lowest barrier to placing calls to action in in that type of programming because they don't really need to be integrated into a narrative storyline. That's going to be particularly effective for for reaching those responsive givers. The stories that are going to be most effective are likely to be uplifting topics that, that appeal to the majority of people, focus on either animals, human services, disaster relief. And if they feature empathetic characters, that's likely to make them more effective as well. So advocates for charitable giving can use these opportunities to raise awareness of specific causes. And in targeting plan givers, they can really encourage recurring donations to people who, who plan their giving in advance. And these types of references can be everywhere, from a Parks and Rec special episode to Young Sheldon to My Little Pony. Yeah, My Little Pony. Good evening, citizens of Ponyville. I want to thank you all for coming out tonight and generously supporting the Ponyville Pet Center. Thanks to your kindness, pets are finding loving homes and we are sure to meet our fundraising goal. So we've learned that the discourse around charitable giving permeates both social and regular media, and that there are even ways to try to influence people's giving through these different platforms. And it seems like these observations matter as much as ever in a moment besieged by major social challenges in the form of COVID-19 and the ongoing protests against racial injustice. Benjamin has been thinking about the charitable response to these challenges, I think one of the most interesting things following the crisis for me was that when it was very clear that this was not going to be a kind of week to week thing, this was going to be a major crisis that really persisted. You had both of the kind of strains that we had seen before, both this sense of kind of elite givers dominating and a sort of turn towards the general American population as being the real repository of of charitable strength. Both of those um, narratives really were amplified. 
The pandemic has definitely challenged the relationship between the surge of large-scale elite philanthropy and the vitality of smaller-scale giving. At the very same time that we were sort of reading the story about Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, there was this amazing kind of surge of interest and stories in everyday neighborly giving, giving that really might not traditionally be counted even. So people who were um, delivering groceries to families who couldn't go out, even staying home was kind of considered for a while a form of generosity. You had this kind of huge expansion of what it meant to be, to what, what kind of civic generosity meant way beyond the kind of classic sit, writing a check to the, you know, the, the local food bank. Even as those food banks and those, and those institutional charities were, you know, uh, were uh, doing heroic work. Ben points out that one of the most interesting developments in philanthropy that a lot of donors and foundations have embraced is giving cash. You know, maybe that doesn't sound so surprising because lots of regular folks give that way. They just hand it, you know, they see somebody in need, they, they give every money. But um, philanthropy has long resisted that. It doesn't fit with its kind of historic self-conception, which is that philanthropy addresses root causes. It's, you know, it addresses systems and, and just getting money uh, was seen as something that charity did, but not philanthropy. But what, what we've seen is because of a kind of confluence of the real desperate need and this understanding that give, putting money in the hands of people closest to the problems that you want to address is actually efficient. Hip-hop superstar Drake provides an interesting template for this kind of philanthropy. Check out his video for God's Plan and watch as he gives away, in real time, his label's nearly $1 million budget for the video to regular folks in Miami. Sports programs, and I, I can't thank you enough. We're making a $25,000 donation to the school for uh, incentives for the after-school program, which we're really excited about. We're also donating $50,000 to you can look at that uh, God's Plan video from Drake and you can see that, you know, there's a part of it which is just good. It's drama. It's, it's, a, it's good. Uh, you know, it's a powerful image. But I don't think you can ignore the fact that there's a critique there of, I'm not, you know, he's not asking questions. He's not asking people to defend themselves or to justify, you know, where they are in their lives in the way that a lot of traditional bureaucracies have. Ultimately, Ben sees a possible revitalization of the generosity of ordinary Americans and the erosion of some of the old school traditional categories of giving. How do you consider the decision to say, hey, a someone who cleaned your apartment or cleaned your house or did, did some labor for you, pay them for not working? Should that be considered a charitable act? Should it be considered, is that a commercial act? You know, what, what is the nature of wearing a face mask? Yeah, so th there was a whole kind of range of actions that, that sort of conflated or combined kind of civic engagement, giving, and generosity. And often it was really rooted in a kind of neighborly ethic, um, which, which has been really interesting. The emergence of mutual aid as a kind of category of, uh, uh, of charitable action, it's an idea with like, you know, long historical roots going back at least a century, but it's really had a resurgence and it's this idea that neighbors should help neighbors, that people should help each other. And so the line between a giver and receiver becomes blurred. And it's really rooted in this sense of, of uh, kind of neighborly solidarity. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, 
Trends on charitable giving continue to shift in interesting ways. While overall giving has increased, the percentage of Americans doing that giving has been trending down. Two, despite those trends, one of the narratives that has developed in the wake of COVID-19 is the rise in neighborly giving and mutual aid networks. The definition of giving and what types of issues are connected to giving does seem to be expanding. And three, giving and philanthropy is a very common topic for people to discuss. In the news cycle, politics and events are key drivers that influence how much people are talking about it. But stories are really able to break through the clutter of information and overcome some of the mental defenses that people tend to put up against traditional, more overtly persuasive messages. So that's our show. Big thank you to Benjamin Soskis, Emily Boardman Ndulawe, and Erica Rosenthal. And another big thank you to producer Jacinth Jones. And of course, thanks as always to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. This episode was produced with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our music is by Moby. On behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids who continue to be co-producers. I hope you like this podcast and I hope you will... Listen to more of the podcasts and learn more. Thank you.